Hey, it's you, man, from KC95 here. Good evening, and welcome to Toasted Tavern. Your host, Scott Tobin, and the man called Wags are ready to bring you the night in sports. So pull up a stool, grab a drink, and let's get toasted. Well, good evening, and welcome back to the Toasted Tavern. It's so good to be back on the air. Scott Tobin, alongside myself, Michael Wags, Wagon Connect, to talk to you all about the local sports scene and Honestly, there's a lot to talk about. Stuff that went down just a few hours ago. We've got the Home Run Derby getting ready to start. Definitely going to be talking a lot of baseball today. Just had the NFL Draft, NBA Summer Leagues going on. I mean, things, it's just so hard to wrap your head around the the sports scene right now. But before that, man, Scott, how's it going? How was your 4th of July? How how have the last couple of months been for you? Uh, busy, man. I've been really, really, really busy, as I know you have as well. But overall, pretty well. Fourth of, Fourth of July weekend was busy. Um, worked most of the weekend. Had Morgan Whalen concert at Bush Stadium two nights, uh, Thursday and Friday night, which was absolutely crazy. We had 45,000 at the stadium on Thursday night and 47,000 there on Friday night for Morgan Whalen. So just absolutely packed. Got to... Uh, Give a lot of credit to uh, country music fans that showed up. For the most part, everything went really smoothly as far as crowd control and all those kinds of things. And uh, he put on a heck of a show, man. You know, he had a couple of openers, and uh, it was just like a party downtown. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, was it uh, more or less than what we saw here with Taylor Swift in Kansas City this past weekend? I mean, look at that packed. I still call, call it Arrowhead, even though it's G-E-H-A, whatever it is. It's Arrowhead. She absolutely packed that stadium this past weekend. What what's uh what kind of comparisons can you draw between Morgan Whalen and, and Taylor Swift? Well, the fact that they both pretty much sold out, you know, massive stadiums on each side of the state all weekend long. They both played two nights in a row. It's pretty comparable. The country fans, the pop fans definitely came out. Like I said, it was it was just a big party downtown this weekend, man, which was cool to see because you know after the shows you know the bar all the bars downtown there were people everywhere it was just nice to see downtown hopping all weekend long yeah we need a lot more of that for sure and obviously we've got you know st louis city sc playing well and yeah the cardinals may not be playing well but they're still a a good draw so we still got that going and and real quick just because we got it up here you, you see all the Swifties out there, and we know what the offensive line for the Chiefs has been able to do the last couple of years, kind of off and on, protecting Patrick Mahomes. Who you got in a, in a lineup, uh, Swifties or the Chiefs O-line? I'm going with the Chiefs O-line. Talking about Patrick Mahomes, though, did you see he was there both nights of, this, of the Taylor Swift show, him and his wife? You know, you got to do what you got to do to make the wife happy. And if you like it yourself, you know, not not anything wrong with that. But it, it was great to see. I also saw Nikki Glazer was down there as well. So a lot of St. Louis representation over on the Kansas City side for, for Taylor Swift's concert this past weekend. And again, like you said, the fact that we had massive concerts on both sides of the state just, again, shows you what this Midwest is all about. It, you know, it's not a flyover area. People are here. They're, they, they celebrate great music, great sports, everything in between. And it's like you said, it's great to see that we were able to pack both venues all weekend. And it was a holiday weekend as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that was a part of it because, you know, I talked to people that had flown in from 
Idaho and, and Washington State and all over the place to be at this Morgan Whaley concert. So people came from all over the country to be in St. Louis this weekend. And everybody I talked to was just blown that was from out of town was just blown away by how beautiful Bush Stadium was and how nice downtown St. Louis looked. So that was good to hear to get that perspective from people from all over the country. Yeah, it really is considering all the uh, the rigmarole that St. Louis has been put through with you know just national perception and all that. It's, it's always good to see and hear what out of towners think and can really say that the city isn't as bad as it maybe seems. Uh, although we do still have a very very long way to go to make things safe and, and productive down there, but you know, we're, we're building it up. You got Bush Stadium down there. You got Enterprise Center. You got you know City Park. You got Union Station and the Wheel. All that going on. You got the Top Golf going in over there in the Slew area. A lot of really really good things going on downtown, and even more to come as well. But uh, let's set that aside. Let's get to the meat of this of this show, which is talking about sports, and that's what we're going to be doing right now. Got the Home Run Derby getting ready to start here on ESPN, and you know it's another one of those. It's in Seattle, so. Not necessarily a hitter's ballpark for one of these kinds of, uh, of events, but you've got some powerhouse guys going at it for the title today. Just you know, looking at the the, the lineups, you got Luis Robert or Luis Robert Roberts going against Adley Rutschman, uh, uh, Dolas Garcia versus Randy Arozarena. Yeah, okay, a couple of former Cardinal products. Okay, let's not talk about that yet. Mookie Betts and Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Pete Alonso and Julio Rodriguez. I, I mean, you look at that and you go, man. Pete Alonso, two-time champion, is a seven seed. It just shows you the power that Major League Baseball has right now. And, yeah, a lot of it has shifted to the American League side of things. But I think the National League is going to represent pretty well here as well. Yeah, I think it'll do okay. I think it'll do okay. I'm going with – I don't know about you, but I'm going with the uh, hometown kid tonight. I'm going with the Seattle guy to win this thing. I think Rodriguez wins it. Hey, yeah. Well, I'd like to think uh, he would be able to win it because he is the hometown kid. Uh, although there's always a lot of pressure on the hometown player to go out there and produce. We've seen it multiple times, including Albert Pujols when he was here in St. Louis with the All-Star game as well. You know, you want to put on a good show for the fans, and sometimes that makes you tighten up a little bit. Uh, you know, three Cubans in the, in the, in the roster tonight of Home Run Derby participants. Uh, I would not be surprised if any one of them won. You know, Randy Orozarena is a guy that always seems to rise to those kinds of occasions. So we'll see if he is able to produce pretty well. I, man, looking at it, there's so many opportunities for guys to really show out tonight. Uh, I, I Just because I was such a fan of his father's, I just love the way that he goes out there and just has fun upon fun upon fun. I got to go with Vlad Guerrero Jr. tonight. I, I think he might wear himself out a little bit, but... I really love the way he swings, and I, I think he's going to go out there and, and put on a good show tonight. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good pick. You know, he's going to put on a show. All these guys are going to put on a show. I, I don't really care who wins as long as it's not Pete Alonso. I'm not a fan of that guy at all. I don't think anybody in St. Louis is a fan of Pete Alonso at all, considering what he did, although Stubby Clapp took care of him pretty well. Uh, last year so yeah anybody outside of that I mean yeah I, I like to sit there and say okay I'd love to see a, a, a cardinal product show up pretty big tonight and yeah that, that may get some fans a little riled up because you know we already know about the arguments going around oh why do we trade these guys oh they're, they're stars in the making 
okay, yeah, yeah. If you could, if you could have sat there and in, in 2017, going back and said, hey, yeah, don't trade this guy because he's going to be a star. Where were you then, and how come you're not in Major League Baseball now as a uh, as a general manager? Because you know we could armchair quarterback and general manage the ends of the earth. And none of us would get it 100% right. So, yeah, it sucks to see some of these guys that could be Cardinal products producing, especially when the Cardinals are struggling the way they are. But, you know, it's still a fun event. And to, to sit there and say, hey, one of the guys that won it was a product of our organization, it just gives you some, you know, just something that you can take pride in and know that, hey, maybe, maybe it can happen with a guy that we have in our system now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, Nolan Gorman's a guy that you can definitely see in the future being in that home run contest. You know, he was, if he would have gotten elected, he was going to be willing to participate this year, but he's definitely a guy that I would love to see in the home run derby. And at some point, Jordan Walker also with the power that he has would be fun to watch. Well, uh, obviously only one Cardinal in the all-star roster, which is Nolan Arenado, uh, because the Cardinals have not been good this year. Um, you know, 38 and 52 right now in 11 and a half games back of the Reds for first place in the Central Division. It's been a tough, tough season. I know you've spent obviously every home game down at the stadium, so you're able to see a little bit more about what's going on on the day to day with the St. Louis Cardinals. I- I'll be perfectly honest. I think I've watched a total of three games this year, and. At the beginning of the year, it wasn't because I wasn't interested in it, but as this year has gone on and you just see the consistent struggles of the starting pitching, uh, of the relievers, of the, the offense at times, of the defense at times, it's not it's just not become appointment viewing for me anymore. But you know, I'm still keeping an eye on it and seeing what's going on. And you know, you see the Adam Wainwright situation trying to get to 200 wins now on the IL, maybe should have gone on sooner. You know, the fact that, you know, they passed on a bunch of guys in the offseason and now you're struggling in the starting pitching rotate in the starting pitching aspect of things. You're seeing the offense kind of do some stuff here and there. Wilson Contreras hasn't been as good offensively as I think people were expecting him to be. You still got Goldsmith and Arnado doing what they're doing. And Jordan Walker, after the kerfuffle of him going down because he wasn't doing what the team wanted, but was hitting like crazy at Memphis and now has come back up and is going crazy up here. I mean, it's just a very, very tough situation to be a St. Louis Cardinals fan right now. And yet there's still this little glimmer of hope, whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing, that this team could potentially still make a run to the playoffs. I mean, it just you almost wish they'd either turn around completely and die this year or they have to get off to such a hot second half start that it can be no doubt that this team's going to make the playoffs before before the trade deadline hits. Well, and you know, you don't have enough time now to get off to a hot enough start to be no doubt that you're going to get in the playoffs before the trade deadline hits because you've got, you know, you're going to have two weeks basically and you're 11 and a half games out and you're still 14 games under 500. So, I mean, you know, and we've seen this team go in streaks where they can win seven or eight in a row out of ten, and then they fall apart again. Um, you know, it's it's going to be really interesting to see what they do the next couple of weeks. I mean, it, it's it's so hard to guess, sit here and say, okay, I think they're going to be a buyer or I think they're going to be a seller. I don't honestly. If you ask me right now what I thought they were going to do at the trade deadline, I would tell you that I think they're going to do a little bit of both. I, I don't think they're going to be a buyer totally. I don't think they're going to be a seller totally. I think they're going to try and sell a little bit. And I think they're going to try to, you know, 
possibly make it possibly make an addition or two to try to build not necessarily for this year that much more towards next year in 2025. I think you're going to see them go out and try to get some guys that have some term that they can bring in that can be a pieces that can maybe help you make some kind of run this year, but more looking towards 2024 and 2025. And in doing that, I think you're going to see a move on. I hope you're going to see them move on from the guys that have expiring contracts. You know, I, I hope you, I hope you, you're able to move a guy like Paul DeYoung, who I think has done enough that has some trade value. You know, Tyler O'Neill is going to come back on Friday when the second half starts. Hopefully he has a decent two weeks that you could possibly get some trade value out of him. And then you've got to look at the pitching. You know, I know we, we need all kinds of starting pitching next year, but, you know, Jack Flaherty is a free agent. Jordan Montgomery is a free agent. Jordan Hicks is a free agent. Do you look at those guys and say, okay, we definitely need to bring these guys back? Or do you say, eh, you know what? Maybe we can trade these guys and get younger versions of them or upgraded versions of them that are a little bit younger that you know we can have for four or five years of control at a much less cost. And then we can still look at adding that ace at some point. You know, and maybe that happens at the trade deadline. I'm not sure that the ace that they're looking for is going to be available at the trade deadline, but maybe you can make an upgrade. Maybe you can go out and get, although he wouldn't be a long-term option either unless you're resigning, but maybe you go get a Lucas Giolito and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to roll the dice, see how you do the second half, and with the idea that we're going to sign you long-term, if everything goes well, you know, I know, you know, there's been a lot of talk that they've talked to the Mariners about some of their young pitching out there. You know, Seattle needs some outfielders, so maybe, you know, that seems like a logical fit. But, you know, there's just so many questions about who you move, what you do. You know, now you're looking at the catcher situation going, okay, did we totally screw this up? Is Wilson Contreras going to be our catcher? Is Yvonne Herrera ready to be the catcher? Do we move Wilson Contreras to the outfield? Do we make him the DH? What do we do there? You know, I mean, you look at this team and you can blame Ollie, you can blame the players, but everything that's gone wrong in this season, you can throw right at the doorstep of the front office. I mean, John Moselak did an absolutely horrible job of putting this team together. You know, I hate to say that and being a Cardinal employee, but, you know, he's got to take the blame for this and say, you know, I screwed up and now I got to try to figure out how I fix it. Well, and that begs the question, you know, you look at the fact that, yeah, at the trade deadline, you're going to go out and potentially add and subtract at the same time. Where is there any confidence in this front office that, they're going to be able to target and then make the deals that will make this team better. I mean, you you look at what this this front office has done over the last handful of years. Yes, they brought in Nolan Arenado on a steal. They brought in Goldschmidt on a steal. But they've also had so many miscues that, you know, is there any confidence that they would make the right deal? Because, you know, you hear names like a Nolan Gorman and a Jordan Walker being floated out there as trade potential. Yes, that's that's talk. And a lot of times that's just smoke to try and get teams interested to start talking. But it also wouldn't be something that I would put past this front office if they felt like it was going to make them better. I don't see how that would be the case. But where what is the trust level? in this front office at this trade deadline that, that they are going to set themselves up for a better future. To be honest with you, it's really, really low. You know, that's the thing is you feel good about the fact at this point that Gersh and Moselak can mark moves, you know, because they've shown the inability to do it now for the last, you know, three or four years. It seems like, like you said, other than the Goldschmidt and Arenado trades, which were slam dunks, 
what move have they made that's made any sense or that has worked? Nothing. You know, I mean, you look at it, you're like, okay, Wilson Contreras, right now you'd have to say is a disaster. Jeff Passan did an article today and said Wilson Contreras was the least valuable player in Major League Baseball, um, which, you know, that's not a bringing endorsement for what you did in the offseason with $86 million. Um, you know, you've got a question. I mean, you, you have to question the moves they made. You know, why did you give Miles Miles Michaelis a two-year contract? What what in the world made you think that was a smart move going into this season? Because he's not been very good the last couple of years. I mean, he's been okay, but not a guy that's worth $18 million. You know, I mean, you know, just so many bad decisions. You know, the Steven Matz deal looks bad, although, you know, Matz pitched well yesterday. You know, and maybe he can figure it out. But so far, that deal's been a disaster, you know. We can go down a long list of bullpen mistakes that they made with big signings. You know, it's just, you know, again, it goes back to really the last time they made a free agent signing that was decent was Matt Holiday, and you know that was thirteen years ago. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just been one bad decision after another, and you you hope that he can figure this out and somebody can pull off a good trade and you can go, go get some guys that'll help. Yeah, there's really no confidence in there and. You know, you look around and you hear people going, well, you know, maybe you trade Nolan Gorman and Brendan Donovan to get some pitching. Well, okay. So if you trade Nolan Gorman and Brendan Donovan this year to get pitching, what are you doing next year when all of a sudden you have pitching? And wait a minute, nobody on this team can hit now. You know, I mean, that that makes absolutely no sense to me. If you're going to trade some of those guys, I mean, you're going to trade. To me, you trade a guy like Dylan Carlson. You trade a guy like Lars Dupar. You trade... Tommy Edmond, who, you know, I know a lot of people in St. Louis think Tommy Edmond's the greatest thing that's ever happened to baseball. But, I mean, you look at his offensive numbers, and they've gotten worse every year. That he, you know, you look at his numbers this year, and somebody will tell you, he's hitting 239. He's got seven home runs and, like, 26 RBIs. But if you go back and look at it, about 17 of those RBIs came in about six games where he had four or five RBI games. You know, he's had a couple of grand slams. He's had four or five big games that have pretty that have really been the numbers that he's put up. Other than that, he's been pretty awful this year offensively, honestly. Well, I mean, just looking at his, his, his last four years, really. So in, in 2020, he hit, he hit 250, jumped up to 262 in 2021. Was at its peak uh, outside of his first year. He hit 265 last year. Now he's dropped down to 237, a 303 on base percentage. And, and that's the thing. You don't necessarily want... Tommy Edmond to be your your power guy. You need him to be a guy that gets on base. Well, when you're on base percentages hovering right around 300, that's not going to do it for this team that that needs guys on base for the Goldschmidt's and the Arenados and the Jordan Walkers. You know, he's he's walked 24 times. He's struck out 50 times this year, which I mean, obviously strikeout to walk ratio is never going to be even or positive as far as you know walks are concerned, but just 14 stolen bases bases this year and only 29 RBIs. So, yeah, he, he's another one of those guys that I don't know. I would say that the shine is worn off on him because, you know, both you and I were very skeptical early on about what Tommy Edmond was going to be able to do in Major League Baseball. And, you know, we, we have been surprised, pleasantly surprised at what he's been able to do for this team for the last couple of years. But you can see now that potentially either it's exposure or it's just the fact that he's being shifted around to different positions on the field that has really kind of shaken him offensively a little bit that, you know, maybe if he settles in at one spot, 
maybe his offensive numbers go back up and he's a good guy to get on base and help your team out, but it's possible it doesn't. So do you take the time and his value right now and try to get something for him? I, I think you, you have to think about it because you have, oh, guess what? A guy with a little bit more power in Brendan Donovan, who again, doesn't have a long track record of being successful long-term. But if you're going to, if you're going to go with Tommy Edmond and you can get something for him, you've already got a replacement in Brendan Donovan. Well, and you know, the thing about Donovan too, is he's got more power, but he also, his on base percentage is so much better. He draws walks. He makes contacts. He hardly ever strikes out. He draws a ton of walks. You know, he's a, he's a much better leadoff hitter than Tommy Edmond is. You know, he's proven that the last year and a half. You know, I just think Brendan Donovan, I know Tommy's done a really nice job in center field when they've had to stick him out there. But, you know, and he has. But Tommy also struggled really bad at shortstop early in the season when he was playing shortstop every day. You know, so I just think if you're going to move one of those two guys, to me, I'm moving Edmund and keeping Donovan because, like I said, Donovan's a better all-around offensive player, you know, which is what you need. Plus, he's a little bit younger. You know, Edmund's going to be 28. Donovan's only 26. So, Andy's going to be cost controlled a little bit longer, which I know that's why a lot of people say Donovan's the guy you trade because teams are going to go, ooh, we have more control over him. Yeah. But, you know, I still think that Donovan's the guy that you need to keep around. Plus, he's he's just a little bit more, he's feistier. He's kind of that scrappy guy that you, this team needs that they don't have a whole lot of. You know, that tough, I'm going to throw my elbow up there and let him hit you, let him hit me if I need to get on base. Whatever I need to do, I'm going to do. And, you know, he's just a little bit different in that aspect than Tommy. So, you know, that's yeah. my thought process there. And then, and then, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, you're good. And then, you know, the outfield, the outfield, same thing. You know, I mean, you in one way, you hate to give up on Dylan Carlson because he was so highly thought of. But, you know, at some point, it makes some moves there. And, you know, I think you've got to, I think you have to look at Carlson and you have to look at Newpar. Okay. Or either one of these guys really ever going to be what we were hoping they were going to be or are they more fourth outfielder type guys and you've got to make that decision and you know if they've got trade value right now and you're not 100% sure then you need to you need to make that trade now while they still have some value and don't get stuck two years from now going oh man we could have traded them for something and we didn't and now what are we stuck with and you know, that goes back to a couple of years ago when I laughed at this and said there was no way I would do it at the time because he wasn't very good either. But, you know, the Cardinals had the opportunity to trade Tyler O'Neill for Zach Wheeler two years ago at the trade deadline and, you know, didn't do it. And obviously now we all look at that and go, man, that was a huge mistake. Yeah, yeah, no, you certainly do. And then, and then you got, you know, the, the Randy Orozarena trade that, that went down and he's just now hit number 17 in the first round is of the home run derby. And he's kind of matured a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously he had some, some issues, you know, in, in public life when he was with the Cardinals and even when he, when he went out to, to the West coast as well. So you feel like maybe he's kind of settled himself down now that he's down in Tampa, but you know, it's, it's interesting to see what deals were done and what deals weren't done. And again, you're going to, you're going to have fans that are going to look at it and say, Oh, Two years from now, when Tommy Edmond is a, you know, a, a World Series MVP at second base for so and so, yet you had him. Why'd you let him go? Or Newt Bar or Dylan Carlson or what have you? It's like in the in the the, the scope of what we saw, and, and I think Ben Fred was actually talking about this on Twitter just a little while ago. You know, with with the Rosarena and Garcia and, and the 
fact that the Cardinals could have had Lewis Roberts, uh, it's they had such little looks at the major league level that you were still kind of basing everything on hope and and what their potential was. And yes, you look at those three and their potential has has shown up. And you look back and you go, well, fudge, I, I, why did we get rid of them? But nine times out of 10, you look at potential and, and they fizzle out. So you're basically taking a, a, a one in 10 shot uh, of a guy being good. And unfortunately, looking at it right now, those three all hit. So, you know, three out of 10, that's a, that's a higher percentage than most of these guys usually get. So they just, they just kind of got unlucky. And Carlson maybe has a chance. I mean, he's a guy that probably a fresh start will do him good. And yeah, I could see him being a guy that is a very serviceable outfielder. I don't think Tyler O'Neill will be. I, I really don't. Um, you know, I, not not because I don't think he can. I just don't know if physically he can. He, he has been injured so much in his career that he just there's just no way for him to be able to sustain it over such a long period of time. Yes, he had the good year here in St. Louis, but that was it. And I, I just don't see it being something he can replicate anytime after that. And you know, with Edmonds, same thing. You know. He's not uh, a long-term player in my eyes. So if you've got the ability to get some value for any of those three guys that will help your team either this year or, or in the coming years, I think you have to do it. And you have to, to, to get out of your mind the fact that this team could potentially go on a run. If they do, great. But you have to have the mind for the future in, in order for this team to be successful. Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, Tyler O'Neill, there's going to be a team. If Tyler O'Neill can come out and have a good couple of weeks, there are going to be a lot of teams that are going to go, huh, Tyler O'Neill's interesting because, you know, he's a two-time gold glover. You know, he was an MVP. He was an MVP candidate a couple of years ago. We know he's got the speed. You know he's got the power. And he's only 20. He just turned 28. So there are going to be teams that are going to say, hey, I'm going to take a shot on this guy. And you might be able to get a bigger return for Tyler O'Neill than you really think you can. And while I agree, agree with you that I don't know that Tyler O'Neill is ever going to be able to stay healthy, you know, you could put Tyler O'Neill in a different ballpark. Say you put Tyler O'Neill in a place like Atlanta or Boston or Baltimore or one of those smaller ballparks that the ball flies like it doesn't at Bush Stadium, you know, and he may go from hitting 25 or 30 home runs to hitting 45 or 50 home runs. Yeah, he might hit 220. You know, and he might only play 100 games, but, you know, a bunch of flyouts that he has at Bush will be home runs at all the ballparks. And that's the reason that I think that Paul DeYoung still has a lot of value to a lot of teams, too, because they're going to see the power that he has. And again, you put him in a different ballpark, he's going to hit a lot of more home runs than he does at Bush because a lot of those flyouts to the track at Bush Stadium that he hits are going to go out of a lot of other ballparks. Well, and you saw what he was doing down at Memphis, too, when he was down there. I mean, he, obviously hitting off of AAA pitching and things of that nature, it, it allows you to kind of inflate the statistics a little bit as well. And, you know, Paul DeYoung still has some value defensively as well. I mean, it's not huge. It's not a, a difference maker defensively. But if you've got a guy that can at least solidify a spot, that also helps you as well. And, and for a guy like Tyler O'Neill, he's not going to be hitting – three, four, or five in a lineup. I think, especially for an American League team, if you got a guy that's hitting 220 and hitting bombs for you down in the eight or nine spot, 
that's a huge plus for you because that means your lineup turns over so much because they're not getting any easy outs. So I think I think for O'Neill, you had to be looking at an American League team per, per se, but with the DH now in both leagues, you, don't, you can't even quantify this an American League thing anymore. So you know the fact that Atlanta sits there and they're you know one of the best run differentials in the game at a plus one forty seven there behind just Texas and Tampa Bay in that instance. You know, you add them to that Atlanta lineup, whew, watch out. Atlanta's probably the favorite because, I mean, outside of them, I don't see anybody else that I sit there and, and, and I'm scared of. Um, and, and speaking of that, let's let's take a quick look at some of the uh, at the standings for for the uh, All-Star break because, you know, we made our prediction. We were talking about this before the show. Last time we were on, we were doing our Major League Baseball preview show, and we made our picks for – you know, how each division we thought was going to pan out. So let's take a look, starting with the NL East, about, you know, where these teams sit based on where we thought they were going to be at. And, uh, yeah, a, a little different, huh? A little different. Philadelphia, we thought, was going to be up at the top. They're sitting in third right now outside of a playoff spot. The Mets, I mean, the Mets are just a disaster. Um, I, I They went from, from being in second place to – fourth place in the matter of a month and they're like 14 games out of first place right now I, I just I don't even know actually they're 18 and a half games out of first place my, my my correction 18 and a half games out of first place are the Mets with the highest payroll in the base in Major League Baseball and that's what you get from there and you know for for me looking at it and, and we were talking about this as well <clears throat> and I should have pulled I should have pulled the audio but you know, I, I, I said, hey, the Marlins are a team that could surprise a lot of people and possibly sneak into a playoff position. And right now they are in a playoff position because Skip Schumacher has installed the Cardinal way down there in Miami, and they're doing things the right way. He brought in the right guys to help lead that offense and defense and the pitching staff, and, and they're doing things that I think nobody expected them to do this year. Yeah, no, I mean – like you said, Skip, the Marlins are playing Cardinal baseball. They pitch and they play defense. You know, they hit for contact. They run. You know, they, they play Cardinal baseball. And you look at that Marlins coaching staff and you've got Skip managing. You've got John Jay at first base. And John Mabry is your assistant hitting coach. So, you know, there's a lot of Cardinal ties to what's going on in Florida. And you have to be happy for Skip. You know, you wish that you wish that he would have stayed in St. Louis and maybe eventually become the manager here. But you have to be happy with the way things are going down there for them. And then, you know, you've got other Cardinal ties there, too, of course, as, you know, Sandy Alcantara, of course, as everybody should be in St. Louis pitching in our starting rotation. But uh, it's another, that's another mistake that John Mosellock made. But, yeah, that Marlin team has surprised people. I thought they were still a year or so away. But, you know, I think the biggest move that the Marlins made was going out and getting, you know, Larissa Rise having that contact guy hitting almost 400 that – doesn't try to hit the ball hard, doesn't try to hit for power, but he's on base all the time and he steals bases. And, you know, he just, he proves right there that you don't have to worry about launch angle or velocity off the bat. It's just making contact and being a, being a good fundamental baseball player. And, you know, the Marlins have a bunch of those right now and Skip's going a long way with it. That he certainly is. So that's a look at the NL East. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Central with the Cardinals and where they're at. And the surprise up at the top are the Cincinnati Reds. We thought, hey, they were going to be in last place. They're uh, leading the division right now by a game over the Milwaukee Brewers. Cubs sitting there in third. Pirates were up near the top 
for a good portion of the first half and have since dropped back. But the, the thing about the Central, and it's it's a crazy thing to look at, and that's why I think that this division is still up for grabs for anybody, is you look at the run differential for these teams in the Central. Cincinnati leading the way in the Central at a minus nine run differential. Second place team, the Brewers, are at a minus 13. The Cubs, a plus 26. And I think you can credit that mostly because they play at Wrigley and you usually score a bunch of runs at Wrigley. The, the Pirates, a minus 46. And the Cardinals, a minus 33. Four of the five teams sit there with a negative run differential. If any one of those teams can find pitching and keep hitting offensively, they have a chance to really make some hay in this division, and especially considering you're going to have a lot of divisional games coming up in the second half. Yeah, you would you would think so, and it's going to be interesting again to see what happens at the trade deadline because a team like Milwaukee, you know, remember last year they were in first place and they traded their closer at the trade deadline and fell apart. So what's to say they don't trade Corbin Burns, who's going to be a free agent? You know, I know they're sitting there in second place. But there's a real possibility that they may trade Corbin Burns at the trade deadline. You know, you look at the Cubs, and the Cubs have said they have no interest in re-signing Marcus Stroman. You know, and so Stroman's one of the best pitchers in the National League. Does he move? You know, the Pirates The Pirates are going to get their stud shortstop back in the next couple of weeks after missing most of the first half. You know, he was so good at the beginning of the year when they were hot. So do they kind of rebound? You know, the division's going to be really interesting. Do the Reds go out, you know, the Reds starting pitching – do they go out? Are they buyers? Do they try to get a top starter to do things, you know, at, at the second half? And what do the Cardinals do? And it, the Central Division of the National League is going to be the most interesting in baseball because it is up for grabs. It's, you know, who's buyers, who's sellers, what what happens in the next couple of weeks is going to be really interesting to watch. That, that certainly will. Out in the uh, NL West, no, no surprise, the Dodgers sitting up there at the top of the division. We thought they were going to be up there regardless of first or second, and they've done everything they needed to do. I think the big surprise there, and again, I talked about Arizona in the pregame in the preview show as well, being another one of those teams that could potentially be a surprise team. Wouldn't shock me if they were last. Wouldn't shock me if they made the playoffs, and yet they're sitting there in second place right now, mathematically tied with the Dodgers for first place, LA 51-38, Arizona 52-39. and 39. So just percentage points separate them. And you got the Giants right there where we thought they were going to be at third. But the Padres, the big drop down to fourth place. And another team with a high payroll. They have the third highest payroll in baseball, and they're sitting four games under five hundred right now. Yeah, so as much as we like to complain about the Cardinals and we're upset, man, the Cardinals didn't do anything, would you be more upset if you're being a Cardinal fan and saying, man, we didn't do anything, or being a Mets fan or a Padres fan, and those two teams went out and got everybody and spent all this money, and it's just absolutely not worked? I mean, San Diego was supposed to be the next team the, the team of the decade, basically, with all the superstars they brought in. And it just has not worked. You know, I mean, they're pointing fingers. They're blaming each other. You know, there's been some talk that they may trade Juan Soto at the trade deadline again, you know, because it just hasn't worked. You know, they've, they've got such a huge salary and so much money tied up to. Think about this. If the Padres, the Padres are bad now and they're not winning. Look at the contracts that they have guys signed to. So basically, Hugh Darvish will be in his 40s when that contract is up. Manny Machado will be in his 40s when that contract is up. Fernando Tatis Jr. will be in his 40s when that contract is up. Xander Bogarts will be in his 40s when the contract is up. 
So, I mean, you've got all this money tied up to these guys that long term and you're not winning and you're not going to get better as they get older, you know, as they move out of their prime and Machado is already starting to move out of his prime now. And Bogarts isn't very far from that. You know, I mean, it's just a huge disaster in San Diego as well, because, you know, you've got these guys locked up and who's going to take those contracts? Nobody. I mean, you're going to have to eat some of that money. And I think, you know, you look at Major League Baseball, I believe that is something that teams can do now is eat some of the contract uh, money. And yeah, you're just, you look at it and you have to weigh the fact, okay, do you spend a ton of money or do you try to develop from within? Well, you're seeing that both both ways are actually kind of failing right now. And it's it really comes down to the fact that you've got to be able to scout properly as well as evaluate talent properly when you're going out there to give out big contracts. And you, you look at, I hate to say it, but you look at what the Dodgers do. You know, they, they seem to evaluate talent very, very well. Yes, they go out there and they throw money around left and right. But, you know, looking at payroll, you know, the Dodgers had the fifth highest payroll this year at $222 million. So it, it's not like they're throwing out crazy amount of money, but they develop talent and they evaluate talent that they're trying to trade and sign very, very well. And that's why they have been up near the top of the NLS and the National League for the last 10 years or so. And it's a a lesson that teams should be looking at because you're seeing, like you said, what the Padres and the Mets have done, gone out and spent ridiculous amounts of money. I mean, the Mets are at $353 million. I mean, it's just insane how much money they put out there and to sit there in fourth place is ridiculous. But they also aren't developing talent either. The Dodgers have done both. I mean, you look at what they've done with you know, Kershaw, Gavin Lux, these guys that they've brought up through their organization. And yes, eventually they will sign long-term expensive contracts, but at that point they have a track record. And then they evaluate the talent from outside that they go and spend good money on, and it all seems to work. It's front office, it's management, it's everything that seems to work, and neither the Padres, the Mets, nor the Cardinals seem to have that in the National League. And you know what's funny? If you go back and look at the Dodgers and you look at their history, go back to 2010, 2011, the Dodgers, and they're on record, their general manager and their manager is saying, the Cardinals are the model organization. That's the organization we want to be that signs players, that develops players, you know, and then sprinkles in a free agent here or there. But they basically followed the model that the Cardinals used in the early and mid-2000s. And that was so successful here. And it's basically what the Dodgers have done for the last 10 years is they've followed that Cardinal mold. The Cardinals have just gotten away from it. Unfortunately, under John Moselak, you've made bad decisions. You know, it's, and you know, again, like you said, you talk about the Cardinals. Cardinals have developed talent because it's all over the major leagues. Like you said, you've got two guys that the Cardinals developed in the home run derby. You know, the guy that won the Cy Young in the National League last year, the Cardinals developed. The guy that's probably going to win the Cy Young in the National League this year, Zach Gallant, the Cardinals developed. So it's not like the Cardinals can't develop talent. They can't evaluate talent. They just don't know how to not trade that talent away. You know, I mean, they've just made bad decisions. You know, I mean, you think about it now and you go, man, the thing that kind of broke this team is the Marcelo Zuna trade because you traded Alcantara and Gallant for Marcelo Zuna, and that was another one of those situations where Moselock got desperate because they wanted Giancarlo Stanton, 
And they had a deal worked out for Stanton that apparently neither one of those guys were in. And Stanton turned it down. And so you had to have a power bat. You know, fans were begging for power. You know, and so Moselle got desperate. Couldn't get Stanton. They tried to get Yelich. The Marlins weren't willing to trade Yelich at that point. So then you went to Ozuna, who, in Moselle's defense, Ozuna had won a gold glove and had been in the MVP conversation the year before. But there were questions about how he was on off the field, you know, his work ethic, things like that. That was well known in Miami, but the Cardinals took that risk because they were desperate and they traded two young guys and, you know, we know what happened. And, you know, you can look, at, you can look up and down the last seven years. The Cardinals get desperate. You know, you go into free agency, you know, go back to 2017. We need a center fielder. Our, our main objective this offseason is to get a center fielder. We have to get a center fielder. Well, they wanted Charlie Black. They couldn't get him. They wanted Adam Eaton. They couldn't get him. Tried to trade for both of those guys. Couldn't do it. So what did they do? They overpaid for Dexter Fowler. They gave him more years than he needed and more money than they wanted because they, had, they let everybody know we have to have a center fielder this offseason. How did that work out? It didn't. Okay? So then you go to 2018. We've got to have a power hitter. We've got to get a middle of the lineup bat. Everybody knows. We couldn't get Stanton. Couldn't get this guy. Couldn't get that guy. Settle for Ozuna. How did that work? It blew up. What happened last year? Moselle came out. We have to get a catcher. We have to get a catcher. Our main objective is a catcher. Well, then he wasn't willing to go get the catcher that really fit the Cardinals organization. The guy that made the most sense was Sean Murphy, but Oh no, I've made too many mistakes trading young players. So I'm afraid to do that again. So we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to send another guy from the Cubs that the Cubs couldn't trade at the trade deadline last year because everybody in baseball knows that he sucks defensively. Nobody wanted him the last two years at the trade deadline because everybody knew he was a horrible defensive catcher and a horrible base runner and maybe not very good in the clubhouse. But... We have to have a power bat at catcher. We have to go get a catcher. So, again, we gave him more years than he needed to. You gave him a five-year contract at $88 million, and you got him here, and guess what? He's not very good. And now you're stuck again. And after a month, you're like, huh, this guy can't catch. Now what do we do? And the crazy thing is, is you know, they're like, we have to get a power-hitting catcher. Yadier Molina was not a power-hitting catcher. He hit home runs at the no. times you needed him to hit home runs, but he was not a prototypical power-hitting catcher. He was a contact-hitting catcher. He knew how to make contact when you need He was the perfect hit-and-run guy. You saw it time in and again. He made great decisions when it came to putting ball on the bat and putting it in the right spots. You didn't need the power catcher. And, yes, you know Murphy would have been perfect, but now you're sitting here and you're going, okay, he basically got burned training guys, and he got burned signing guys. And I'm, I'm saying this as I'm looking at Elliot Richman right now. He just switched sides in the home run derby, and he's hitting from the other side of the plate in his bonus time. He is mashing home runs. He is oh, almost at 30. I think he's going to hit somewhere in the 28-29 in the first round. His dad is his pitcher tonight. And, like, what a moment. I think – Unofficially, he hit 27 in the first round. And, uh, wow, he, he's going to be a guy that, if you're not a Baltimore Orioles fan, you need to search out 
this guy because he is going to be something else for the next couple of years. But back to back to to Contreras and in, in, in that aspect, you know, Moselock's been burned in trades. He's been burned in signings. At what point does any of that change? Because he's now in a position where he's not the first guy fired. Because the first guy fired is the guy that you never hear from. The puppet of this Cardinals organization, which is Michael Gersh. He's going to be the guy that's on the line. And he's probably sitting in his office going, uh, I haven't done anything. And my name is going to be the one that's put out there that's going to be fired. Like, at what point does a change higher up get made? And how much loyalty do does the ownership have towards John Mozeliak? It, that's a good question, and it, it, I, I don't understand it honestly. Um, and to go back to your other point, yeah, Michael Gershon, I'm sure, is just biting his fingernails, going, "Oh my god, I, I'm just going to sit in my office and lock the door and hope nobody knows I'm in here." <laughs> um, yeah, you know, at some point you have to, you can't blame the manager anymore. You can't blame the coaches. Although, I mean, you know, it would be nice if we had a pitching coach that knew what he was doing, but. Um, you know, at some point you have to look at the general manager or the whatever Moselle's title is now. Uh, Player of baseball, op- uh, president baseball of baseball, op- baseball op- operations. He's the Pobo. Yeah, yeah. Fancy title for average. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's been there now since, what, 2009, I guess. He took that job, 2008, something like that, when Walt Jockney got let go. So you know it's it's time for a new it's time for a new voice in that organization, and you know, a lot of people think that Mo must have some incriminating evidence against the Dewitts or something that he's he's like holding him and holding against him to keep him losing his job. But at some point, he's got to be the guy that you point a finger at, and it's starting to happen. You know, early in the season, the national media was all like, "Oh, it's it's not John Mozeliak. John Mozeliak's been." amazing and he's great and blah 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 now you're starting to hear the national media say okay you've got to look and put a finger right at john mosaic even greg amzinger who's been the biggest john mosaic defender of anybody this past week said this all falls at the feet of john mosaic and it does and you have to wonder you know because you don't even hear from him you know it's not like it's not it's not like he comes out and talks to the media when they're struggling i mean he had i will give him credit in the last week or so he finally has popped his head out and done a couple of interviews. But for the most part, he's been silent all all, all season. You know, it's just like, doodly-doo, I'm in my office and everything's fine. And, you know, when you do hear from me, I talk down to you like I'm smarter than you are and, you know, don't bother me. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason that he's under so much heat is Cardinal fans feel like he thinks he's better than us and he's smarter than everybody that's a Cardinal fan. And, you know, he does talk down to people and kind of is condescending. And I think that's part of the problem there, it's also part of the reason that a lot of people don't like Ali Marmol because he does the exact same thing. But anyway, yeah, at some point, the blame has to fall at Mosellock's feet. And, you know, he either has to make some major changes and or you have to move on, you know. And he can't be afraid to pull a trade because the last couple have blown up in your face. Because when you start doing that, then you're just going to make more mistakes because you're not making you're making safe moves instead of the big moves you need to make. And you know, that doesn't work. You know, the last couple of off seasons, he's been able to patchwork. Oh, I'm going to sign, you know, 65 year old pitchers that come in and stabilize things. And I'll say, Oh, we patchworked it. and We're going to get to the postseason. Well, you can't go out and sign, you know, 
the veteran, crusty veteran this year that's 50 to come in and try to fix things for two weeks because it's not going to work this time. No, it's not. It's certainly not. And just, just taking a quick look at, you know, like Walt Jockety was hired in 94 and he ended up passing the torch uh, at the 2006 season uh, and that World Series championship. In that time frame, they won seven National League Central Divisions, two NLCSs, one World Series championship, seven straight winning seasons, including 100-plus win seasons in 04 and 05. So he was there roughly 12 years, okay, and was successful. Mosellock took over in 2007 as the team's general manager. So they have made the playoffs in six years. They won one World Series and two NLCS National League pennants. So they've done that, but they have not had that sustained success and yes, they've had consecutive winning seasons, don't get me wrong, but it's not been the 100-plus win seasons that they saw under, under Walt Jockety. And, and really, early on they did. But again, how many of those players potentially were still Walt Jockety products and not necessarily John Mozalock products during those handful of years where they were really good? I mean, a lot of it was, you know, the, the, the MV3 and, and a couple of guys that came in after it and you know, they, they ended up letting Albert Pujols go, go, but they ended up, you know, they did sign guys, you know, Carlos Beltran and Lance Berkman, all that to, to kind of, you know, take over and, and help propel this team into the next generation. But, you know, would things have been different if they would have sucked it up and given Albert the money that he was requesting? Would you have been able to keep Yadier Molina? And, and there's so many other questions that go into it. So it's not like he's made poor decision after poor decision. It just seems like, the good decisions that were made early on bolstered this feeling of, yeah, everything I do is going to be golden because I'm part of the Cardinals organization. And now things continually go wrong. And instead of looking in the mirror and going, okay, I got to make some real changes. It's no, 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 no. Everything's going to be good. You know, every decision I'm making is, is going to be good for this organization. It, it just, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. And, and changes don't get made in the way that changes need to be made. And it's going to be interesting to see, because, you know, we've said 12 years for Jockety. So we're sitting on, what, year 16 now of John Mosellock? Yeah, and he signed a two-year contract. So he extension before the season. So you've got a long time left. You know, real quick, talking about Bowen, you know, that's what he hangs his hat on is, oh, I've only had one losing season as a general manager. Well, think about this real quick. Just compare the two guys real, real quickly because we always talk about the moves that Mo doesn't make. Think about this in the years that Mosellock or the, the years that Jockney was the general manager. So, 96, he takes over in 95. 96, he goes out and says, okay, this team's not good enough. What am I going to do? I'm going to go get Ron Gant. I'm going to get Gary Gaetti. And I'm going to go get Dennis Eck. And we're going to go to the postseason. Okay. So you win the you go to the postseason in '96, '97, not very good. You get to the trade deadline, huh? What am I going to do? This team's not very good. I know what I'll do. I'll go get Mark McGuire. Okay, so you go get Mark McGuire. Okay, team wasn't very good, but you had McGuire for '98, '99. You go into 2000, you go, huh? This team wasn't very good. What am I going to do? Let's see. We get Daryl Kyle and Mike Matheny and Fernando Vina and Jim Edmonds. That should help. And Pat Hankin and Andy Bennis. Let's see what happens. 2001, hey, this team's not very good. We need to do something. Let's go get Woody Williams. 2002, hey, this team, we're at the trade deadline. Let's go get Chuck Finley. 
2003, they made a couple of moves, didn't really work, but they tried. 2004, hey, this team's not very good. Well, it's good, but it needs to be better if we're going to win the World Series. Let's go get Larry Walker. You know, 2005, they said, hey, let's go get some guys. They did. 2006, hey, our starting rotation's not very good. We need some strength. Let's go get, I don't know, who can we go get in 2000? Who can we go get that will make this team better? Let's go get Mark Boulder. Let's see if that helps. Did that help a little bit? Yep, that helped. Okay, we have issues. Let's go get Weaver. Maybe that'll help. Oh, yeah, we won a World Series. 2009, you know, Jockney did it that year. 2009, he said, hey, this team's not very good. I said Jockney, Mosaic. The one year that he really went for it, 2009, hey, this team needs help. We're going to get Mark DeRosa. We're going to get Matt Holiday. We're going to go get John Smoltz. I mean, he really went for it in 2009. It didn't work out, partially because Matt Holiday dropped a fly ball in Los Angeles in game two of the playoffs that everybody everybody wants to forget about. I'm sure Matt does too, but uh cost him that game. But he went for it. Other than that, and, and in 2011, he did too. He said, okay, we're going to trade Colby Rasmus and go get all these pitchers, and then we're going to sign Raphael for call, and we're going to make a run. After that, like – what has he done? You know, he got Lance Berkman, too, in 2011 to start the season. So those were the moves he made. 2012, you lost Albert. You went and got Carlos Beltran. Since then, like, where are those big moves other than the two trades that we talk about with Goldie and Arenado? He hasn't been willing. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go get a bullpen piece. Oh, I'm going to go get, you know, so-and-so. Oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm talking about Jockey again, 2006. He also went and got Ronnie Belliard at the trade deadline, which was an under-talked-about move that really helped solidify the Cardinals' World Series team in 2006. But, yeah, you know, again, Mosaic, other than 2009 and 2011, since then, at the trade deadline, it's been, oh, we're going to go get a bullpen guy that nobody has ever heard of, or we're going to go get, you know, we're going to go get John Lester. And who else? Well, who's the other guy they got that year at the – it was Lester, and who was the other starter? Uh, uh, I cannot for the life was, of me remember. He was good, too. <laughs> yeah, he was good. He was good. That's That was the problem. Uh, son of a gun. Who was it? I don't even remember. That's Veteran terrible. Guy, but, yeah, I can't think of his name. Lester and... No, that's going to bug me out. It'll come to me in a minute, probably. It but, will. It will. You know, it was, it was Veteran... It was veteran guys that everybody was like, really? That's what you're going to do? And it worked, but, you know, it didn't, you didn't go very far because it was just, it was just a patch. It wasn't really to fix anything. And the same thing last year, you know, you went and got Quintana and Montgomery, which, you know, everybody, what happened was like, you, you went and got who? You went and did what? And it helped a little bit, but it wasn't enough. You know? so, Happ. There it is. Yep. Yep. And you know everybody, everybody, everybody laughed and mocked him when he made yeah. those moves, but they did work for to help get him in the postseason. But you know they're not the impact moves that Cardinals have made in the past at the trade deadline, or you know that they need to be making now. Another guy that I forgot about the jockey went and got when they needed him two thousand when Mark McGuire got hurt. They went and got Will Clark, who was just yep. unbelievable in two thousand down the stretch to help that team. It certainly was, and then you know you look at the flip side of it too, and you go, okay, under Mosaic, the the farm system has dramatically improved. Yet, you know they don't give those guys opportunities consistently at the top level, which 
eventually leads to them trading these guys that had high ceilings and then they produce at the higher level of Major League Baseball with other teams. And then, again, you're out there signing off the scrap heap when you really could be using some of the guys in your farm system to bolster those spots and maybe set yourself up for the future. So lots of, lots of stuff to talk about when it comes to that. Let's, let's jump over to the American league side as we continue to go through the, the, the all-star breaks standings, you know, starting the AL East, you know, we both had the blue Jays up at the top with the Yankees. And uh, yeah, that's not how things are playing out right now. I mean, we had Tampa down in the four spot, but I think, you know, back in our preview, we were talking that really any one of these four teams could lead this division and Tampa Bay is doing that right now. Baltimore is exceeding expectations, although we both had them sitting around third in this division. So, you know, you look at it, you go, okay, yeah, they're not where we predicted them to be, but I think we both were of the mindset that all four of these teams were going to be jostling for, for, for placement in this division it's just there's a little separation now between Tampa and Baltimore and Toronto and New York. You know, it's Tampa and Baltimore two games apart, but then Toronto and New York are both seven and eight games back. The big surprise has been Boston at nine games back. All five teams are above 500 in the AL East. Yeah, you know, Tampa, obviously, the start that they got off to was unbelievable. Baltimore is a little bit farther ahead this year than I think everybody thought they were going to be. I think everybody kind of thought it was going to be another year or so before they really took off. The Yankees have run into the same problem that they've had the last few years. You know, the guys that they went out and gave big money to can't stay healthy. You know, Judge has been hurt now for a month or so, and nobody knows when he's going to come back with the ligament issue in his toe. Giancarlo Stanton can't stay healthy, which is, you know, nothing new. That happens every year. You know, they went out and got Rendon to pitch, and he has come in and has not been able to be there most of the year. You know, the guys that they traded for at the deadline haven't been there. I mean, Harrison Bader's hitting cleanup for the Yankees right now, which, I mean, and he's been good in New York, but same thing. He can't stay healthy either. But, you know, they just can't stay healthy. And Toronto's just, Toronto's just kind of an enigma to me. You know, we talked about they needed to go get pitching, and they added pitching a couple of years ago, and they added pitching, and they've still got that same lineup, and they just, for whatever reason, can't seem to get over that hump. So that's the team that I'm really kind of surprised with because I really thought this was the year that the Blue Jays were going to kind of run away with that division. And the Red Sox, the Red Sox have been better than I think anybody thought they were going to be. You know, they've had a lot of injuries, but guys like Chris Sale have kind of rebounded a little bit. They've had some, they've had some guys kind of bounce back and be part of that rotation that have been injured and have surprised people. But yeah, overall, the East is a really tough division. Yeah, definitely a tough division. They're out in the uh, American League Central again. You know, the Guardian second year in a row, they have just shown people up in a sense. You know, we thought it was a fluke last year. They're continuing to be impressive this year. It really takes the, the Shane Bieber on the trade block conversation pretty much off the table because you know, he's one of those guys that is helping lead that rotation and doing a, a very, very good job of it. They do have just a half game lead over the Twins, so it's not like it's cut and dried, but the fact that the Tigers – are sitting there in third place with the White Sox down eight games back. Uh, you know, a team like the Cardinals that continuously blows leads. You know, the White Sox and the Cardinals are mirror images of each other, and, and they face each other to end the, the first half, essentially, and the Cardinals were able to take two or three, including a come-from-behind victory on Sunday. But, you know, you look at it, the, the Royals are, are just an absolute mess. Uh, you know, we thought maybe they would, you know, get a little bit of a 
a boost with some of these young players. It, it has not been there. Um, the, the Central has just been kind of like the Blue Jays in a sense, a bit of an enigma because the teams you think we're going to do well aren't, and the teams that you were like, eh, are actually doing pretty well. Yeah, and the division mirrors the National League Central pretty well. I mean, nobody's really been very impressive. There for a while, everybody was under 500. You know, they were just kind of struggling to stay above water. So, you know, it's going to come down probably to Minnesota and Cleveland. But uh, that division is going to be interesting to watch just to see who is a seller. Does Cleveland, even though they're in first place, do they really think they can go very far in the in? the postseason or do they go ahead and move Shane Bieber if they think they can get a haul for him you know to try to to try to stockpile things and the White Sox are going to be interesting because I think that team's pretty much going to tear it down at the trade deadline pretty much anybody you can think of his name is on the trade is on the trade market so we'll see what the White Sox do and then like you said the Royals have just been a huge disappointment you know everybody thought they were going to step I mean which player that everybody thought he was going to be he's definitely having his breakout year this year. Yeah, it's just a shame that uh, no one else is coming along for the ride right now. But it does give some brightness to the future of the Kansas City Royals, the, knowing that you know Bobby Witt is on his way. And over in the AL West, again, it, it, the biggest surprise I think for me this year is the Texas Rangers. You know, we we knew last year that they struggled. We weren't sure how their pitching staff was going to be, uh, but. They've been pretty darn good, 148 uh, plus 148 run differential this year. But it's not because they're just absolutely blowing teams out of the water. I mean, they've allowed 383 runs, which is right there in the middle of the uh, American League West and actually one of the middle of the pack kind of teams in the American League as well. So their pitching staff has done a good job of keeping things in control as well. And the offense has started to wake up. They're sitting two games ahead of the Houston Astros, who – we, I was able to see them a couple about a week about a week and a half two weeks ago here at Bush Stadium, and they're a team that you recognize a couple of names, but you don't recognize a bunch of them, and that they still go out there and produce and they win as a team. And you know, I think those trash can banging days are well behind them, and you're seeing that you know guys like Altuve and, and Bregman are more than the cheating scandal that went around, and they're also very good leaders of men and. Then you see Seattle sitting just a game over 500 right now. A little bit of a surprise that they're that far down, but still, again, an opportunity to make a run in the division. And I, and I think we thought the Angels were going to be way out of it. I mean, I thought they were going to end up in third place. Don't get me wrong. I, I didn't think it was going to be a close third place, but Shohei Otani has been the real deal this year. He's an MVP and a Cy Young candidate this year. And that's just something you just don't hear of. And yeah, maybe he breaks down in a year or two because he's trying to do too much and trying to do everything. But if some team goes out there and gets him for a good price, which is not going to happen, this guy's going to command a $500 million, $600 million, $800 million contract. But he, he actually might be worth the money for the next couple of years for a team and if he can win a couple, help a team win a couple of World Series championships, it might be worth it. I'm not saying the Cardinals should be one of those teams that does it, but I think he's starting to prove some people wrong, but he needs to be able to do it more consistently. He's got them sitting at seven games out of first place right now. So, yeah, the, the Angels still may break down because the pitching staff behind Otani isn't great, but who knows? Maybe they have a chance to sneak in. 
Yeah, um, I don't think so. You know, I, I just don't see it. And I'm one of those people. I wouldn't touch Shohei Otani. You could. I would. I wouldn't pay him three hundred million dollars. Honestly, I really wouldn't. And I know people look at me and say you're crazy when you say that. But you know, the guy just turned twenty eight. He's going to be twenty nine next year. Trying to be a pitcher and a hitter both, and all the wear and tear he had on his arm in Japan. You know, at some point that arm is going to give out, and then you've paid all this money and you don't have him as a pitcher or a DH and. You know, it's just not something I would do. Plus, if you give him six hundred million, like they're talking, how do you build a team around him? You're, he's going to go somewhere, and it's going to be the Angels all over again because you can't afford to put a team around him. Well, on the fact that you know they couldn't do that around Trout, who's now injured, they couldn't do it around when they had Albert Pujols, Anthony Rendon, who's been injured. They just they they are a team that like the Mets, like the Padres, spend money left and right but have no method or rhyme to their reasoning behind who they sign and, and why. And that's why they sit where they sit, which is usually in the lower half of the American League West. And then you got the A's that are bound for Vegas that just, they have no rhyme or re- They have no reason to go out there and play well, except for the fans that they have as support. And you just feel for the fans of Oakland because, again, losing another team. They're starting to feel a little bit like St. Louis when it comes to the NFL. You know, they, they do everything they can. Oh, it's worse than Oakland. And, oh, yeah, it's definitely worse. But, you know, we, we know the feeling, Oakland fans. We know the feeling you have a, a compatriot here in St. Louis. Yeah, you know, we think it's bad that we lost the Rams. You know, Oakland lost, Oakland lost the Warriors. They lost the Raiders. And they're going to lose the A's. So imagine what we felt three times, threefold. Well, and two of them went to Vegas, <laughs> you know, Raiders went to yep. Vegas and now the right. A's are going to Vegas. So yeah, it, it's, it's not a good time to be an, an Oakland A's fan. So hopefully something good happens in, in the, in the Bay area for them, for sure. All right. We've talked long enough about baseball. Uh, let, let's hit a couple of the other big stories that have been dropping here today. Uh, you have to look at the craziness that's been going on in college sports and it got a little bit crazier a couple hours ago. Uh, you know, you have the DUI arrest and quote-unquote resignation of Bob Huggins over at West Virginia, who now is saying he didn't resign and is going to sue if they don't give him his job back. And then Pat Fitzgerald was suspended for hazing allegations that were going on in the football program over the last handful of years up at Northwestern. Well, uh, Northwestern decided to take a second look at the uh, suspension, and they ended up firing him today. So I was going to ask you going into today, which one of these was the weirder situation? But I think we already know the answer that the hazing allegations, which should have been something that was taken care of a long time ago, especially after the Penn State debacle, that has to be the situation that's the most serious. But looking at it, which one of these is just the one that you just shake your head at? You know, I mean, Bob Huggins, you kind of expect something to go wrong because it happens everywhere he coaches. You know, he's he's had controversy everywhere he's been. The hazing thing is definitely the more interesting story and the fact that, like he, like you said, he was suspended. Then they went back and said, eh, you know what? We're not going to suspend you. We're going to fire you. It makes you wonder how, how much more there is to this story that we haven't heard yet and what's going to come out, exactly what was going on and, you know, it'll be really interesting to see, and I guarantee you, anybody that thinks that Northwestern is the only place that stuff like that's going on is crazy because it's 
happening at every university, at every football program, at every athletic program, at every school in the country. And the crazy thing is, though, is after, again, after what happened at Penn State, I know it wasn't necessarily hazing that was going on, but the fact that what's come out has been that Fitzgerald and the coaching staff likely didn't know what was happening, what was happening, but the fact that they had the ability to find out and didn't is the thing I think that really rubs people the wrong way is that you can't be surveilling these kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Stuff is going to happen. Hazing is going to happen. But when the stuff that is being said to have been done is being done in the locker room of the school that you're coaching at and you don't have any clue what's going on, that right there sits there and makes me think, what is going on? Like, did we not learn anything from what has gone on in the past? You know, we're doomed to repeat our failures in a sense by having this stuff continually go on. As I said, you can't stop it 100%. But when it's going on in your own house and you turn a blind eye to it, I... You have to, I don't want to say credit Northwestern for actually firing him because they should have done the research and then made a final decision and not the suspension and, oh, wait, we're going to change our mind. But at least they did listen to more of the information that was brought into them and then ultimately make the right decision. And I saw on Twitter before going on today, though, what are the betting odds that by the time SEC media days hit that uh, Pat Fitzgerald is the defensive coordinator down in Alabama? Very possible. It's very, very possible. You know, that's the thing is, you know, he got fired there and there's all this stuff, but it's not going to keep him from getting a job because he's a good coach. So somebody's going to take a chance as a coordinator and give him a couple of years to rebuild his reputation. And then before you know it, he'll pop up as a candidate for a head coach somewhere else. You know, when it comes down to a lot of these college coaches don't aren't hands-on with their players. You know, they're kind of CEOs and they depend on their, they depend on their coaching, their other coaches you know, and their coaching assistants and those things to hand on, handle the players and handle all of that stuff. And they're just kind of a, not necessarily a figurehead, but they're kind of just, you know, at the top, the executive that kind of he, kind of oversees everything and is not really paying attention to the finer details of stuff. And you see that with a lot of coaches, especially in college, especially in bigger programs. So, you know, I think it comes down to, you know, they're counting on some of these other guys beneath them and assistants and associate coaches and those kinds of things to really monitor this stuff and then, you know, are they doing their job or not? And when they're not, the blowback ends up coming to the head coach. And a lot of times they aren't aware of what's going on. It's, it's just a, an unfortunate situation for all involved players uh, and everybody that's part of the organization because, you know, there are things that can be prevented and, and aren't. And, you know, for, for somebody that's, you know, is covering sports and, you know, if, you look at it and you go, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to be watching out for? What do I need to be saying in these instances as well? And, you know, if you're looking at it and you're going, did I do enough to, to help the situation? Those are the things that we, that we now have to sit there and, and think about and worry about as, as, you know, media members and, and things of that nature. And it, it's a, it's a dangerous slope to walk on for sure. And it's, it's not going to get easier any, time soon uh let's stick a little bit with the college theme but kind of add in the nba because the nba draft was a couple weeks ago uh victor Wimbanyama went number one overall to the spurs and since that moment 
there's been there's been some drama in 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 the NBA in the summer league, and it's not just the fact that he's been shut down after two games of, of summer league play. It's the fact that Britney Spears is now involved in this situation. What's weirder that Britney Spears was involved or that Victor Women, yeah, I didn't know who Britney Spears was. I, I, <laughs> well, you know, he came from France, so I'm not surprised that he didn't know, and especially his age too. He was he was born well after the popularity of Britney Spears, but you know, who who would have thought that the first although, woman that would have been a part Br- of his life was Britney Spears? Although Britney's still there's not too many people around the world who still don't know who Britney Spears is, though, because she's in tabloids, she's on the news for something all the time. Well, maybe maybe he is the the genuinely the one athlete that does not pay attention to the tabloids or celebrity status and really was focusing on his craft to make sure he got into the biggest league in the world. <laughs> are, you, are you sure he was focused on his craft? Because after his first summer league game, he said he wasn't sure what he was doing on the court, which isn't what, what the number one pick to say after their first game. Well, not only that, I mean, that's what he said and that's what he produced. And then he came out and he had a really, really good second game. And the Spurs were like, we've seen enough. We are going to shut him down and go from there. I, that, I just don't get right. that thought process. Now, don't get me wrong. What the Spurs have been able to do with their, their, their talent development and all of that stuff has been second to none. They've been a, a very, very model program to, to watch. But even sitting there going two games in, one good, one bad, and you're going to shut them down and get them ready for the, the regular season. I, I think really what, what they're saying is um, we're getting him into the weight room right now, and he is putting on some muscle before the season starts. Yeah, I, there's muscle. There's, you know, they're a little bit worried about how to deal with his body because we haven't seen a seven foot four guy that can do the things he can do. So nobody's really sure exactly how they want to, you know, they're trying to figure out exactly how they want to train that body and work that body to make sure that he's in ultimate shape. And then how much of shutting him down is like, okay, we don't need you to say anything else stupid to the media. So we're going to have you practice by yourself in that gym and nobody's going to know about it so that you can't have media blunders like this. That, that, that might be it as well. I mean, again, young guy coming in from overseas, you have to kind of learn, learn the, the landscape that you're in as well. You don't have the same sort of, you know, media coverage over in France that you do here in the United States. So that's also a, a good piece of that as well. Uh, locally, you know, Kobe Brown, uh, first round pick, last pick of the first round of the Clippers, first Tiger to go in the first round since Michael Porter Jr. back in 2018. And it, it's going to be really good to see him because it looks like he's excited for the opportunity. I, I think the Clippers really do believe that he's going to be a, a piece of this organization here this year. Yeah, I think so. I think he's going to get a chance to play quite a bit. Well, we know that the Clippers can't stay healthy. You know, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are both going to be hurt half of the season. So he's going to have a chance to play, kind of like the boy Hodge with the Lakers. You know that three or four of those guys are going to break down and he may get a shot. Yeah, and and Mizzou doing themselves proud. They're they're starting to build that organization, well, that, that program back up and it's going to be fun to see how how things play out this year and in the coming years as well and because of that you know there's starting to be some more rumblings especially after adam silver spoke about the nba expanding as soon as next year about st louis being a potential landing spot for the nba and you know obviously you've got 
the fact that the, the Hawks only title came in St. Louis. You've got Jason Tatum and Bradley Beal as big marquee names in the NBA. We're, we're the third largest city without an NBA team. But the likelihood that the NBA is coming here very soon, I still think is very low because you got Seattle that lost the Supersonics that are continuing to push for a, a franchise. And we've already talked about the city, but Vegas is another one that is high on the list of, of places for a professional sports team to go. And the fact that they're going to have football and baseball in the coming years, adding basketball in there is not out of the question. They also have the the, the NHL there. So really basketball is the last place or the last team that really needs to get in there, the four major sports. So it, to me, it doesn't look like St. Louis is likely in the near future because I think that like the soccer team, they're going to need some local representation, some local ownership, and that's going to probably fall on the guys like a Jason Tatum, a Bradley Beal, a Larry Hughes, in a sense, to put something together that makes sense for the league and for the city. So I don't know if I'm off base here, but I think it's something that could potentially happen, but it's still a ways away. I mean, you know, we should have an NBA team here. I mean, we've had there have been three instances in the last 20 years where it was almost a done deal. And then the St. Louis partnership that was supposed to be Port Arthur's has blown it up. You know, we could have had the Spurs here in the mid-80s. That deal was almost done. We almost had the Pelicans, and we almost had the Grizzlies. You know, I mean, the Grizzlies probably were the closest. The Grizzlies and the Spurs were probably the two closest. I mean, you know, the Lorries totally screwed up the Grizzly thing because he wouldn't give it a year. You know, they wanted him to wait one more year, and they had the deal done, and was signed, sealed, and delivered, and the Grizzlies were in St. Louis, and he got his panties in a wad and wouldn't wait a year and backed out of the deal because he wanted it done immediately. But, uh, yeah, I think it's very definitely a possibility. The NBA would definitely like to get a foothold in St. Louis. They've seen all the talent that's gone into the NBA from St. Louis and from Missouri in general. You know, when you look at some of the kids that have come from, you know, all over the place in Missouri that have been – big-time players in the NBA and in college basketball, they would love to get a foothold here in St. Louis. And so, yeah, I think in the next four or five years, you may actually see it finally happen. That'd be very interesting to see. And, you know, you saw what, you know, the NBC continually does here on, on a year-in and year-out basis. The fact that the NCAA has held different portions of the national tournament here as well, including the national championship. You know, you see all of that and what St. Louis can bring in it's not out of the question that an NBA franchise could do well here. And you saw the success of what you know St. Louis City has been doing in their first year with local ownership. That, that's probably the angle that they're going to have to take in order to make that happen. But again, a grassroots kind of thing can work here because that's what St. Louis is all about. It's, it's blue-collar workers. It's family blue-collar workers that make this city run. And that's exactly what you would need for an NBA franchise to to thrive here. So uh, one more stop on our trip around the local landscape, and it's St. Louis Blues offseason. Um, yeah, you're looking at that picture right there, and you're going, okay, Blues made some moves. They've, they've made – who the hell are these guys? Uh, <laughs> these are the, the, the offseason moves the Blues have made this year, which is basically re-signing Tyler Tucker, bringing back Mackenzie McEachern, extending out Hugh McGinn to a two-way contract and bringing in a host of minor league players, in a sense, including the brother of P.K. Subban, Malcolm Subban. Uh, that's about all the Blues have been able to do this offseason because, you know what? 
they don't have a whole lot of money, uh, as we've seen. You know, with the signing of Tyler Tucker, the Blues now have nine defensemen under contract on one-way deals going into this season, which means Doug Armstrong is going to have to work some major magic here in the next couple of weeks. And yes, I know I didn't throw Kevin Hayes on there. He was the big acquisition that the Blues made. But again, it was more of a salary dump more than anything else, a salary flip in a sense. You haven't really done much to move the needle when it comes to the, the cap space that this Blues team has. And You've still got to re-sign Alexei Toropchenko, who I think is going to be a big part of this Blues offense going forward. But you've got to move some of these defensemen as well. Tory Krug nicks the deal to Philadelphia. That would have brought in Travis Sanheim as well. So who's the guy that's going to be on the trade block that could potentially be moved by this Blues team? Who knows? Because they all have no movement clause in a sense. Colton Pareko, Justin Falk, Tory Krug all have no movement clauses. I don't want to see Justin Falk go anywhere. I think even though he's a bit undersized, I think he's a very valuable asset to this team. Tory Krug was the guy that I thought was very likely moved out, but he's got a brand new child, and I don't blame him for sitting there and going, no, I, I like security. I like being here. I'm going to stay here. Colton Pareko, I, I mean, yeah, that would basically be saying we lost on this one, but maybe he's the guy that can fetch the biggest return. I don't think he wants to leave St. Louis, but... You know, maybe maybe Doug Armstrong can do something to, to sway his mind and get that contract off the books because they need to do something. I honestly, I think if one of them goes, it's still going to be Tory Krug, and I know he turned down the trade. He you know used his no trade clause and said, "No, I'm not going to Philadelphia." But if you're a player and you know that the team doesn't really want you here anymore, do you really want to stay? Is that something that's going to work when you get to training camp? Because you're gonna have that feeling that hey they didn't want me here why do I really care um you know I, I still think there's a chance that they find a fit for Tory Krug I know he'd like to go back to Boston you know there was some talk that maybe he would go to Philly and then Philly would flip him back to Boston but uh you know I think he's the one who can go I think it's either gonna be him or Marco Scandella I think one of those two guys are the ones that go but I I would if I had to guess I would say Tory Krug is the one that still at some point they figure out a way to to move on well, they have to find something because going in with nine defensemen on one-way contracts is not how you want to go into a new season. And it also means that they haven't been able to sign any of these free agents that are out there. Not to say that any of them are really going to be like big movers of the needle here for the Blues. But, you know, obviously Torbchenko is in arbitration, so he's going to be signed. But how much of that money and the pie is he going to be taken up? But still out there. Are guys like you know Patrick Kane and Jonathan Tays? Those those guys are still out there on the market. Vladimir Tarasenko was signed by Carolina, fired. And then he fired his agent, hired somebody else. He's still out there. Possibly could still go to Carolina. He's still available. You know, defensively, you're not going to touch Matt Dumba because you've already got nine guys under contract. Thomas Tatar is out there. Uh, the Patrice Bergeron, David Krejci. That that's more of the hey, if Boston wants to bring him back on one more hurrah, that's what's going to happen. Those guys may just retire. But the one guy that's still sitting out there that makes the most sense and has done everything he possibly can to tell St. Louis Brass that he wants to come back is Oscar Sundquist. You know, he has been at almost every single St. Louis City game I can think of. He went on the road this past weekend to Toronto to watch him play. This guy is born to be a St. Louis Blue. You know, Craig Brewery loves him. He's a guy that will fit into this lineup very, very well. The only problem is, is... Are they going to be able to afford him? And if not, what's that going to look like when, when the team lets another guy like that go?
go to another potential Central Division team. As we know, Ryan O'Reilly went to Nashville. It, it just none of this seems to be going well for the Blues right now. No, and from from everything I've heard from guys, you know, the stuff that I've heard from Blues insiders that are, you know, Jeremy Rutherford and you know guys that are around the team, they all don't think the Blues are going to make any more moves. They think this is the team that is going into training camp and, you know, there's just nothing else that's going to happen. Mm. So, I mean, it would be nice to bring Sunquist back, but I don't really think that's going to be something that the Blues are looking at. I think if they were going to do it, it would have been done already. You know, I, I think I think they're going to go into this season and, you know, I think they brought in a bunch of guys that are placeholders that they're like, okay, this team's not going to be great again next year. You know, we'll make a run, see if maybe we can slide into the playoffs, but I think really they're looking at 25 and beyond is really being competitive again. Oh, they're going to have to still do something with the defense because a lot of them are signed long-term and Rodriguez is just going bonkers here in the first round of the home run derby. He's in his bonus times already hit 37 home runs. I think the pressure might be off of him a little bit, but is he doing too much in the first round? We'll have to see as this one progresses along the way Uh, for, for, the Blues, the schedule was released as well. Uh, we had a lot of really, really good games on the schedule. We'll break that down as we get closer to the regular season. Uh, but uh, another year where maybe a little bit lean for the Blues. You may see the Cardinals miss the playoffs. You may see the Blues miss the playoffs. And I posited this question to my brother at the start of the season when St. Louis City SC was sitting at 5-0, and best start for an expansion team in Major League Soccer history. And I was like, okay, would you trade the Cardinals and the Blues missing the playoffs this next season for a St. Louis City MLS championship in year one? And he goes, I probably would, but I'm not 100% sure because if the Cardinals and Blues miss the playoffs, that doesn't necessarily mean that in the following year they're going to be any better. So I'll I'll put it this way, and I'll, I'll ask you this. Now that we're at kind of the halfway point of the the baseball season and the MLS season, would you trade the Cardinals and Blues missing the playoffs this year and this year alone for St. Louis City SC to win an MLS Cup in their first year? Since the Blues have already missed the playoffs and the Cardinals are more than likely going to, I'm going to say yeah. Oh, I meant next year for the Blues. Next year for the Blues. (laughs) Semantics. No, no. I'm thinking this year. We're using this year. Um that's hard for me to, you know, I don't want the Cardinals to miss the postseason any, any year, but, you know, if you can win a championship in your inaugural season, that would be a pretty special thing. So you've got to, you've got to say, yeah, I think I would. Yeah, but you got to have the Cardinals and Blues do something in the next year to really make it worth the while. So we'll see how that plays out. We hit on a lot of stuff tonight. Definitely talked a lot of Major League Baseball as that's the season that's really in full swing. But uh, lots of stuff to, to continue to watch and monitor as the, the rest of the summer goes on. I know you're going to be down at the ballpark a lot this year as a, as a Cardinal employee. You're going to see a lot more of, a, of the baseball season than I am. But getting ready for the start of college football as well. NFL training camps will be starting up soon as well. So as soon as those get going... We'll start talking a little bit more about the fantasy football league that we'll have this year, as well as the Pick'em Challenge that we're going to have this year, as well as part of uh, Gateway City Sports as well. So lots of things on the horizon, as well as weekly shows starting up again. Yes, it's been two months since we had a show, but you know what? We've gotten through the hardest part of the summer, and now we're ready to get back and kicking 
and talking a lot about the local sports scene. So, Scott, anything else you got before we head out tonight? So, one more NBA thing. What, where's Dave Lillard going to go? And has anybody lost their credibility and respect more in a couple of months than Dave Lillard in the last couple of weeks? You know, I don't know if you've heard the latest rumors, but apparently his agent is calling teams and saying, "You better not make it. You may not better not make an offer today because if he goes to your team, he's not going to play. The only place he's going to play is Miami. If you're really, I mean, if that's true." I've lost all respect for a guy that I had a ton of respect for for sticking out in Portland all these years. Yeah, and the thing that got me was the fact that it was so late that he requested a trade. I mean, you look at right. it and you go, why not at the end of the season just be like, hey, look, I've I've really done my best to put my, my whole heart into this Portland thing. It just has not worked out. I want to move on, and I'd like to go somewhere where I believe that I can win a championship. If he would have done that, Nobody would have sat there and questioned his credibility or anything. But the fact that he waited until no. Summer League was getting ready to start, the NBA draft was happening, and now is demanding that he basically goes to one team. Like, I get it. He wants to go to a team that he thinks he can win a championship with. And, yes, he has been very, very selfless in, in his career of, of being the guy that's kind of taken the brunt of it all. But – he let his frustrations out and it is not a good look at all. And, you know, if nobody makes an offer and Miami's the only one that he wants to go to, what does Miami do? They say, okay, we'll give you a, like two of our practice players. That's about all we're going to offer. And if you don't take it, oh, well, I guess you're stuck with a bad contract and nobody that plays. Well, that's pretty much what Miami's done. They're like, hey, we'll give you Tyler Hero and a couple of draft picks, which if we, you know, we win the, Finals, you're going to get like the 32nd pick for a couple of years. And Tyler Hero. And Portland's like, no, that's not going to work for us. But if he's, if Dame's telling everybody else, hey, don't try because I'm not coming there, you know, he's got two years left on his contract. I mean, Portland can play hardball and say, hey, we're not going to trade you to Miami for that deal. And you can either play for us or you can retire and, you know, give up that money and go home. You know, I mean, it's not like he's got a lot of options, honestly. No, not a whole lot of leverage whatsoever. So, again, that's another situation to, to kind of watch as this summer progresses, as the, the summer league continues and then wraps up and you get into training camp for the NBA as well. So, plenty of storylines left and right in every single sport. Oh, yeah, we got the Women's World Cup getting ready to start down in New Zealand and Australia as well. U.S. looking to win another World Cup championships. So just so much stuff going on. The U.S. men's national team is coming back later this year as well. So, I mean, the sports world is buzzing right now, and, and we're going to be along for the ride from here on out. So make sure you come back and watch plenty of shows with us. Scott, what else you got? You know what I can't wait for, Wags? It's going to start in two weeks. Training camp starts, and then ESPN and NFL Network, we're 24 hours, seven-day-a-week coverage, Aaron Rodgers and everything, J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. I can't wait. I'm so excited to see what Aaron Rodgers is going to do this year. I love that guy so much. Can, can you tell there was some sarcasm in that? Just, I just mean, a I, little bit. I'm already, sick, I'm already sick to my stomach even thinking about it. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see uh, what things that Brett Favre did that Aaron Rodgers is going to do as well. I mean... There were some things that went hat went on in the Jets and Vikings days that I, I mean, if Rodgers does that, oh my, oh my, he let's might. Just put it that way. 
you know, Aaron might Aaron might have a little bit too much of his little uh, cocktail mixture, and he might know where he's at. And he may show up and practice naked or something. You know, he likes to be touched by hundreds of hands of his of his ancestors, and you know, there could be all kinds of fun stuff going on with Aaron Rodgers in New York. He he goes into his dark room every day, and then doesn't with realize he's not dressed, and then comes out naked. So yeah, plenty. Oh my gosh! With, with his with his with his man bun and his gray, he looks like a sixty-five year old man. I, I, he looks so bad; it's not funny. Oh gosh! And you know what? He watch him. He's going to come out and he's going to win the MVP this year. He's going to lead the Jets to the playoffs and a Super Bowl championship. And everybody's just going to be like, "Dude, dude." It, it, and to be totally honest with you, it wouldn't shock me because that Jets team is going to be good. You know, if, if he's decent, that team is going to be good. I mean, that's. That might be the toughest division in football with Miami and with Buffalo. And, you know, if New England gets, you know, because there's rumors that the Patriots offered DeAndre Hopkins contract yesterday. And there's talk that they've talked about to the running back, to a couple of running backs. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see. There's still some big free agents out there that have to make some decisions here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, there really are. So, again, another storyline to watch as the summer right. continues. So, yeah, make sure you come back next Monday for another edition of the Toasted Tavern. We'll break down the start of the second half of Major League Baseball, how training camps and summer leagues are going, and really kind of get a, a little bit of a preview of the NFL season as well. So, lots to talk about then. So, make sure you come back and join us next week. For Scott Tobin, I am Michael Wags, Wagon Connects, saying thank you for joining us tonight. We'll see you guys in about a week. Hey, it's you, man, here from Casey. For all your sports news, catch the Toasted Tavern with Scott Tobin and the man called Wags weeknights at 9 p.m. You can follow Toasted Tavern on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Let's get toasted.